you need that extra energy to just uh, paddle as hard as you can because the waves are moving 30 miles an hour or whatever. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them, and how they find the courage to face it head on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Codex Beauty Labs. I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I'm putting products on my skin, I don't really know how clean the ingredients actually are. Often beauty companies make these bold promises about their ingredients, only to be short on reality. But Codex Beauty Labs, on the other hand, represents what is good in the beauty industry today. What I love about Codex is their transparency and commitment to science. Their pioneering products are composed of clean and meticulously sourced ingredients and have clinically proven skincare benefits. Even more reassuring is that their wonderful founder is an award-winning PhD scientist herself. Simply put, Codex exceeds market expectations in sustainability and cleanliness. Each day, they work towards their mission to blend plant biology and biotech innovation and to create true, long-lasting plant-based biotech beauty. I'm really happy I found these wonderful products, and I highly recommend them. They smell absolutely delicious and make your skin feel silky soft. You can find Codex at codexbeauty.com. My guest today is award-winning journalist and adventurer Jamal Yogis, author of Saltwater Buddha, The Fear Project, and the children's book, Mop Rides the Waves of Life. I absolutely love this conversation. Jamal's take on the subject of fear is breathtakingly refreshing and unique, and will make you rethink everything you know about our emotions. In this episode, we explore Jamal's time spent living mindfully in a Zen Buddhist monastery, his experience surfing the crushing California waves at Mavericks, and we get a glimpse into the most frightening moment of his life. I first asked Jamal how he views fear, and if his understanding of it has changed since writing The Fear Project. Yeah, it's uh, a great question. Although I don't have this broken down into any organized definition, I feel like, you know, the Eskimos have like a hundred different words or whatever for snow. I feel like fear should also have a hundred different words because there's so many different nuances to feelings of arousal that come, that we relate to fear, I should say. So there's anxiety and stress. There's fear for someone else. There's fear for yourself. There's times where you might be breaking through one fear, but you're breaking through that fear because of a larger fear. So there should be a a word for that. You know, it's just um, an incredibly, as you know, complex subject. And I had no idea when I started diving into it that I was going to be tackling it from so many different angles because we use the word in a a broad way. Mm. Similar to you, this interest in our minds is something that's always fascinated me. Two things in particular are fear and love. So many other human emotions like jealousy, anger, stress, I think all come back to this primal emotion of fear. Do you agree with that? 
Absolutely. I mean, um, it's interesting the relationship between fear and love because, and, and this has become so much more nuanced for me as a dad, because I mean, first of all, there's, there's the fact that love really does overcome fear. And we see that in studies where, you know, if you have a bunch of people taking a, a math test and they say all of a sudden, Hey, this, your grade is riding on this whole test. And the anxiety level goes up. Most people will do worse, but people who love math, <laughs> they're actually, they take that challenge as like some fun and their performance goes up. So if you love something, the, the, the fear of it, actually, you can transform that fear into a high performance state. Also, if you, you know, you see with animals where they might freeze under threat of like a predator if they're on their own, but if their children are around, the love of their child helps them overcome that fear and they might like attack the predator or do something really brave. So fear and love have this really interesting relationship. And for me, I used to be willing to be a little bit more brazen about my own actions because I was only putting myself on the line. But with having children, you know, I've had to really break down what is like wise stress <laughs> and caution from what's just being paranoid um, because you're protecting these little people and you do have to get them to wear a helmet on their bike. Or it, it really is about addressing each feeling uniquely and knowing your mind intimately and knowing your your way of doing things that we come to like understand this profound relationship between fear and love and when you found that kind of inner life for yourself you a really life-changing moment for you was when you went to this zen buddhist monastery can you tell us how you found yourself there yeah so Buddhism and meditation have been a, a huge part of my life. And I found them really by just hitting, a, I think, an intense wall of fear and anxiety. I was a, a teenager who's just getting into the typical teen trouble. Like I got a DUI. I'd been, you know, getting suspended from school. I, I wasn't a particularly bad kid. I just wasn't very good at covering it up. <laughs> I kept getting into trouble. I was like a skateboarder and I always wanted to surf. So I, after getting into a series of trouble, I just, I ran away to Hawaii telling myself it was to learn to surf, but there was also some unconscious draw to connect with my dad who I'd been sort of estranged from since my parents divorced and he'd been a surfer in Hawaii. So I think I was like an unconscious call to him, but long story short, um, while I was there, I thought, oh, I'm running away to paradise. It was incredibly difficult <laughs> to be in Hawaii as a 16-year-old with no money and, and very scary. And But I did last a few weeks there and I taught myself to surf and was kind of just trying to put my life together, a life together, get myself into school and whatnot while my parents were searching for me. And I had had... Uh, some introduction, brief introduction to mindfulness meditation, but I hadn't ever really done it. It was something my parents did, were a little bit into. So I just got a book and started trying it on my own. And I found that right away, 
it was it was difficult but incredibly helpful and so that led me eventually about a year later to when i graduated high school going to live at a zen buddhist monastery and it taught me infinite things about my mind and it laid a foundation for having a daily uh, mindfulness practice in my life, which I don't think I would be surviving parenthood now if I didn't have it. <laughs> what was that thing that you that you learnt at the monastery that was so useful about yourself? Well, one is just that most of our, relating to fear, that so many of our anxieties and stressors are, well, all of them are in our mind. So they are to some extent a choice and our reactivity to circumstances, there's an ability to change that. So in the monastery, we would, you know, we were up at four in the morning every morning doing an hour of Tai Chi and an hour of silent meditation. And then there was study and then we were doing it again. We had taken all of the I guess the usual information that's streaming into our brains nonstop and you cut it off and you're just watching your thoughts. And so you're finally taking that storm of waves that's usually one half on top of the other where you don't have any ability to really see what your mind is doing and you slow it down so that you can really start to observe your reactions in this incredibly uh, scientific way. So you start to see, oh, I normally react to a criticism (laughs) with uh, some heightened stress and then I act on that heightened stress and it becomes an argument. But in the monastery, because you're removing a most of your social interaction to just a few and you're also removing the stream of information that clutters your mind, you're able to watch that and catch yourself and realize you can retrain the mind. So the other thing is that so much of Buddhism is around taking the focus off of self-obsession. So you realize we're we're so trained to worry about what everybody's thinking about ourselves and our image. In Buddhism, they basically say that clinging to the self and and the desire for acceptance is the root of your suffering (laughs) and the root of a lot of our fear, right? Because so much of our fear, we're social animals, is about wanting to belong. So you're also taking that into this manageable space, the monastery, and you're working on it with other people. So you, it's so deep, our desire to belong and our desire to, and our obsession with our own minds, because it's where (laughs) our life exists. Um, But you're every day, not only training to watch your thoughts and how your suffering arises, how you say, oh, look, I wake up and immediately I start thinking about um, you know, how do I look today? How do I, um, or, or a thought occurs that like, you know, that person gave me a, a funny look, like, does that, do they not like me? And maybe that triggers a memory from high school about a look you got where you excluded at lunch. And then you go down this spiral. Again, you're, you're quieting your mind. So you have an, ex- an opportunity to look at those patterns and how they work. You mentioned there about accepting ourselves. And I think, Sometimes to do that, we have to face ourselves and and let ourselves feel things that that are uncomfortable, such as fear. And perhaps that can only come in stillness and not when we're moving around so much. And I've done, I tried to meditate and I've done silent retreats and 
but for me it's and I, I do it it's just the discipline of doing it every day I, I really struggle with and other things I have found to be to be almost just as um, beneficial such as dancing I go into a real kind of meditative without sounding really corny but you know like a real meditative uh, state it kind of helps me when I'm moving and I was thinking about this with you and do you feel this when you're surfing? Is that a is that a feeling you have when you're doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that actually physical activities, which are everything you could say is a kind of meditation. It's just what are you meditating on? <laughs> so um, when you are in a Zen monastery, you're meditating on your own mind and silence and you're meditating on some sense on stillness and stillness and movement in a very subtle way but that's not the only way to meditate and you know you live in london i live in san francisco usually those are hustle bustly places and i think going into a little bit of stillness but then f having a, a movement component of that is a great way to train and meditate for a fast moving world so i for me surfing running, skiing, doing those kinds of things are my moving meditation. And also they're a little microcosm where I get to encounter a bit of fear and stress. And I feel like train myself to embrace fear and be with it and transform it in a positive way where, because fear essentially is just energy, right? So your body is giving you a little bit of extra energy to deal with a potential threat. So, and that was because, you know, if a bear is there or, or um, you have to run from an avalanche or whatever, it's like you need extra energy. So those moving meditations are a way where we get an opportunity to move, which our body is telling us to do when we're stressed in a way that um, has flow and where we can find more flow in our lives and flow or, you know, some scientists call it coherence or those states where you feel in tune, you feel like you're operating at, at your full potential and you feel joy and happiness or timelessness. Interestingly, fear can be the energy of fear can be a doorway into those states if it's embraced, like those math students I was talking about who love math and they get stressed and they're suddenly doing better. It's like those movement meditations are a great way to play with flow and, and find out how to find more of it in your life. Because the interesting thing about people who study flow and flow states and um, high performance is that the more flow you have, the more flow you have, will have. So the more you can find that place, the more likely you are to find it in other areas of your life. You wrote this, uh, you put this on your Instagram, Jamal, and I would love to read it because it's really beautiful. Like good and bad, pleasure and pain, the tides come in, the tides go out, but the sea is always full the water always alive. The good news is you're the sea. The bad news is you keep identifying with the tides. And that's really about our, our thoughts, isn't it? And attaching our emotions to our, our thoughts. And actually that a lot of the time our thoughts are not true. Is that right? I mean, yeah, we, <laughs> there's a funny bumper sticker 
don't believe anything you think. Um, there is a way in which, you know, everything we experience is subjective and we have a, a way of walking through the world where we're just sort of responding unconsciously to triggers of our thoughts. So we're not actually like meeting reality. And in some level, I mean, that little poem I wrote about waves can be taken in different levels. I mean, on, in the one sense, a sort of Buddhist sense, there's this clinging to a separate self where we really believe that we are completely separate beings who don't aren't sort of in the flow of reality, which is not actually the case, right? Like when you when you start to break down what you are, <laughs> you are sort of like more like a wave in the ocean where the wave has a separate identity and you can say, oh, there's the wave, it came into being and now it's, you know, cresting and you can describe its unique components. But then the whole time the wave is actually just energy and it's a domino effect of molecules like bouncing <laughs> off, moving through this medium of ocean. And in a way, you know, we are like that too. Like we are constantly eating carrots and burgers and whatever else. And those become our body. And then we shed things and they go back into nature. And there's very little of like much of the water or atoms in our body that we're born with. We don't have when we die. So what holds us together um, as a self are these memories, um, these ideas, these subjective ideas of ourselves. And that self as a separate entity is kind of a lie. And it's sort of that clinging to I am separate from everything else that also I think allows us to really self-obsess to the point that we're debilitated by fear and anxiety. And also doesn't like nurture a really like compassionate way of living. Jamal, I'd love to talk to you a bit about your childhood fears, because um, you said you were a bit of an introvert. I think of myself as a bit of an, an introvert, but you've also said that this kind of being aloofness, being aloof, was actually a way of not confronting fear, which I thought was really interesting. And you said you often felt paralyzed in, in new scenarios. And I wonder, is this avoiding the discomfort of uncomfortable feelings so then it appears as aloofness yeah it's this is one that had subtle nuance so you know i have some innate shyness and most or introversion which i think first off it's important to say that we live in a extra a world a world that praises extroversion <laughs> so often introverts feel shame that they don't want to get energy from being with people and being an introvert doesn't mean that you don't like being with people. It just means it can be more draining for you. So whereas extroverts like will get a lot of energy from being with people, introverts may love it, but then you feel like, oh, I need to recover. I need some time to myself. And that's me. Like I, lo I love being around people, but there's a, a point where I just have to retreat. But as a kid, you know, I didn't know any of that. And I just knew I was joining new schools a lot because my dad was in the military and we were moving. And um I just wasn't that kid who would go up and approach somebody I wanted to play so with. So 
but being alone also didn't feel bad. So I remember like being a first grader at a new school and just wandering the playground by myself and everybody saying, well, who do you want to be friends with? And I was kind of like, well, I do want to be, I do want to join that, but I'm also okay, actually, just kind of playing over here by myself. But I noticed as I, I'm, I am a social person and I would often, once I did become friends with someone, I would latch on to like the most extroverted popular kid at school. And I think that was a little bit of a way of like hiding in some ways. Not that I didn't have a real connection with those people, which I did, but I think there was a kind of pattern of that where I could like hide behind, like it was like they could do the social introductions for me. <laughs> so when I was writing the fear project and really reflecting on this, I I'd, I'd gone through a bad breakup. And so I was back in that phase where like, Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to go put myself out there again and feeling the anxiety of that. And I realized that when I become friends often with those extroverted popular kids, I would then play the aloof artist guy who would sort of get people to like him by being intriguing. (laughs) So be like, what are you thinking about in this corner at the party? You know, like, you're so interesting and weird and unique, you know, and I'd have, you know, I'm a, I'm somebody who's always just naturally thinking about big issues. So I think that became an identity. Like I'm a quiet, aloof, introverted, artistic person. And all of that is true, but then you can turn that identity into a thing where it's like, well, I won't approach the things I'm afraid of or or do those things that are more extroverted, which I actually want because I'm afraid. So you've, you've created an identity that is like, feels good, not pursuing the things you want, (laughs) Um, you actually want. And so that can become frustrating, I think. And then I, I think if you don't notice that you become gradually one of those people who separates from the world and becomes like this big critic of everybody who's like engaged in the things they want because you're like, Oh, I don't need any of that or I don't want any of that. And so writing the fear project was a big reflection on this for me where I realized, Oh, if I'm going to really be a Guinea pig and sit with what I'm afraid of, I should notice that I have anxiety about this and I can, and the only way to get through that anxiety of approaching people that I would like to talk to or that, I need to practice this and not, you know, just um, make an excuse that this isn't me or whatever. When I was reading your book, I loved the bit when you were when you were talking about surfing the Mavericks, which in surfing terms, it's the Mount Everest of surfing, isn't it? Um, and you talked a bit of, there about about you were about to surf the wave and you felt a bit like you didn't belong with these famous big wave surfers. And I wanted you just to talk a bit about that experience because when I read it, I was like, oh my God, how did you surf that wave? And, you know, is death something that you fear when you're doing that? Because one bad move and you're just crushed. And, you know, how how do you feel about that? Yeah, Mavericks was an interesting experiment for me because on some level I was critical of my desire to want to surf there because I knew there there was sort of this teenage angst aspect of it where I knew that I wanted to belong to that club 
of like of and just get approval be like hey i'm part of this club that can surf the biggest waves and part i was critical of it because i knew that did stem from in some ways from a bit of a deeper fear of not being good enough and so you know why should i have to like take this macho angle on that and go prove like what do I have to prove but there was a part of me too that just really wanted was really curious like and as a fun challenge and I wanted to also experiment with like what would it what will it be like to be in that truly risky position you know and if I really take this strategy that I'm studying where if you train meticulously for each thing that can go wrong at least up to what you can control can you lower your fear to a place where you can do it? So I think uh, at any rate, when I got out there, it was just paralyzing at first because Mavericks is this place where humans, it doesn't feel like we're meant to be there. Like the waves, you know, are 40 feet tall and more and the ocean just feels like it's turning inside out on itself. And the when the wave breaks, it's just feels like a nuclear explosion and and on top of that you're competing with some of the best big wave surfers in the world to get these waves in a very small area so you have all the anxiety social anxiety on top of it of like am i going to get in one of these people's way are they going to think i'm bad at this if i say this one's mine and then you know don't go um and then also what if i just get smashed and die out here it was paralyzing uh, at first and it really did come down to dealing with that primal feeling after about four hours of trying to surf out there and not catching a wave of saying, I do belong here. I can do this. I belong here too. And actually getting so frustrated with seeing other people <laughs> do what I knew on some level I could do, but my fear system was just not allowing me to push over the ledge of the wave and and go. Cause you have to just, it's one of those ex- moments where you need fear. You need that extra energy to just rah, <laughs> paddle as hard as you can. Cause the waves are moving 30 miles an hour or whatever to go down the wave. And I just got so frustrated with myself of holding up that wall of fear. And on some level, it was like just going to that primal state of like, I can do it, you know, that helped me eventually go. And, and the other thing that I think helped me too, that was really crucial that I write about is, is that I did fall, take a fall, or at least I was slammed down by a way of trying to paddle over it. And it was seeing what that, worst fear is like like this was this happened i was realizing i was wondering how bad it would be it happened i got smashed i was down deep in the darkness wondering if i was going to make it up and i did and i think had i not had that experience it might also have been harder to gain because you know sometimes that's a blessing when your your big fear happens and you're like oh it happened and now here i am you know Hoping it doesn't kill you. <laughs> you said that one of your your fears now 
you said I, I have a repeating anxiety that I'm not prepared enough or not doing the job right and that's wrapped up in identity and this is something that really resonates with me because I think for many of us our sense of self is really entwined with what we do as a job and I'd love you to elaborate on your experience with those those feelings around identity. It was interestingly writing the fear project that sort of propelled me into a whole new aspect of my writing career that I'm in now. Like right now my world is writing, I'm writing a middle grade fantasy series, graphic novel series and children's picture books. And oh, I'm I, working... loved your... I loved Mop Rides the Waves of Life, by the way. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. So good. Thank you. Um, I, I love doing that work. And it's really closer to the kind of work that I think I've always dreamed of doing in writing. But I started off, I felt like I didn't want to just be a creative writer who was like sending things off unpublished and never able to get there because I had I, I felt like I'd seen other people do that. And so journalism became this thing that I was interested in and I wanted to do, but I, I wouldn't say it was like the way I envisioned my life going in writing. Um, it felt like I was jumping through hoops still. And, and the Fear Project, to some extent, was like the pinnacle of my journalism career because I had this great publisher, great marketing campaign, doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. It was combining, you know, my passions with getting to interview all these top people in their field. But as I was going through the marketing and on the book tour and everything, something just didn't feel right about it. And I'm always questioning, like, is this just my anxiety about whether I'm getting accepted in the world or my usual feeling? Am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right path? Or is it something bigger? And it pestered me enough. And I, about six months after writing The Fear Project, I kind of hit a rock bottom where I just I felt like just the wheels wouldn't turn anymore. Like I couldn't get excited about doing another project like that. And it wasn't that I wasn't passionate about all those things that I wrote about. And uh, it just felt like I couldn't jump through another hoop and I had to go back to a little bit back to that place of retreat that I hadn't been to really since the monastery. And I took a few months where I didn't really do much work and just a lot of reflection and meditation and time outside. And I realized I'd really covered up this original desire I had with writing to do more stuff from the imagination connected to my childhood. Um, I was a big fantasy reader and loved those worlds and felt like there was a way that you could connect to some deeper truths that were harder to get to with nonfiction in fiction. So that was really hard shift because it's so hard. It's really hard to break into <laughs> children's picture books or fantasy writing, um, fic the whole fiction world, especially if you've not, you know, everybody just wants you to do the same thing you've been doing. So if you haven't shown that you have a track record in that, it's really hard to pivot in most careers. So I had to kind of go back to square one and it was scary. But I think when you hit rock bottom in a place where just like the wheels won't turn and you don't, there's something 
where you just know it's a good gut feeling and it wasn't just like oh i'm afraid to do another book or another journalism piece it just it's like no this is right and it really was because now i i feel i feel in a really fortunate place where aligned with my work i still get that anxiousness of like am i doing enough am i but it's different um now as i i feel like i've gotten to a place where i'm not just jumping through hoops these are the projects i want to work on that feel like what i've dreamed of doing and i feel really fortunate and now the questions are more like are you talking to the right people are you going with the right publisher etc is that the right next project but it's um it feels more aligned yeah and if you were to say what your biggest fear is now after all the work you've done around fear and your knowledge about fear what what would that be do you think well i mean absolutely it's just you know the well-being of my children um which is again i think is one of those aspects of fear where you you can really say that it's love but it's the one that if you're talking about just like heightened arousal or something that won't let me sleep at night it'll be you know how are they doing whether it's just you know are they are they making the right friends at a new school or you know or something bigger like i mentioned like climate change where i'm thinking like are we really are we going to make it you know to a world where they can thrive and enjoy um the things they're enjoying now and but i guess you know i i qualify that as like is that can you really call that fear it's something that is really just that innate primal desire of a parent to protect your children I, on a personal level <laughs> i think aging is is more uh challenging than than i think as a a young someone who got into like buddhism <laughs> at a young age i always thought i would have this like ease of aging where um i'm like i'm okay with change you know i'm okay with things <laughs> breaking down but i'm such a passionate outdoorsman and i love love sports so much that watching my body start to change is is scary you know i got a in knee injury this year and i was like oh my god i can't you know we're up here in whistler this year and i like couldn't wasn't sure I was going to be able to ski hard with the kids. And I, I realized, wow, you know, I really, I do want to take care of myself. That's a healthy caution and stay fit so I can keep enjoying these things. And at the same time, like there's a deeper part of me that I realize is clinging and will need to let go and like open up to, okay, you know, this is, this is how it is. You, you won't be able to be hucking yourself off cliffs. <laughs> on the mountain when you're 65 and so you know or even or even 42 so you gotta you have to just um push in the right way and in a wise way and keep having fun you know and when you come to um you know conquering fear and facing fear you have spoken about positive exposure what is that what is positive exposure 
Well, yeah, this is the, when people ask me, like, what's the one thing, if they have a specific fear, like public speaking or snakes or heights or something, and they want to overcome it, this is the, the way to go. It's just the research is there where you need, you can't just think about the thing and say, oh, I hope I, or, or go to talk therapy and all those will help, but you need to have positive exposure to the object of fear. So the reason is because your fear center works totally outside of conscious thought. It's faster than you are because why you throw your popcorn in the air at a movie before you say, oh, it's just a movie. It's because your, your amygdala is faster than you are. It's an older part of your brain. By you, I mean your, your conscious thinking self. And it makes associations with things lightning fast. So if you have become afraid of public speaking because maybe you were embarrassed as a kid in front of the class or it's an innate fear, you have to teach your amygdala, your fear center, that it's safe. And the only way to teach it is to show it because it's your lizard brain. It doesn't understand all the equations and, and the high rhetoric <laughs> that you want to explain to it. It's not a big deal going in front of everything. It doesn't care what you tell it. You have to lead it to the to the crowd and say, look, I'm safe up here. But you don't want to do that in a way that's going to create another bad experience that will just reiterate the fear. You want to take it to a safe spot. So you might watch other people on a movie who are afraid of public speaking overcoming their fear. Then you might do some practice in the mirror and then you might say, join a Toastmasters class where there's other people who are afraid of public speaking who are going to be supportive. So each experience is a positive experience. Then, you know, you can rev up for getting your TEDx talk or whatever. So it's a science. It's just you give your lizard brain the evidence it needs to not be sending you into a panic when you're in front of that, that thing you fear. When it comes to your kids, what do you teach them about their own fear? I find myself in both situations where it's like they're clearly afraid of, say, joining a new class or, you know, starting a new school. And they're making all these excuses that they say, oh, I'm not afraid, but I don't want to do this because it's awful and because it's so stupid, you know, and I know that they're just feeling anxiety. So I try to just help them remember times where they were in a similar situation and then they warmed up to it or, or sometimes, <laughs> I mean, with kids, sometimes I do find myself like distracting them into that situation or giving them a carrot, you know, like a reward for, just so they feel like they'll take that baby step toward the positive exposure. But then on the flip side, they became like excellent, I mean, excellent for their age group, they became really good skiers this year because we were living in Whistler. And there were there were times where I was just like, we, you, you can't go down this run. This is like a triple black diamond. And it's not something that we should be on. Like, even if you have the capability, it's just if you fall, you'll get badly hurt. So, you know, we should save this. You're seven. And, um, <laughs> and, and there was a lot of wrangling about like, well, why, why can't I? And this person does it. And, and sometimes I felt like, was I being overly protective and all this? So it's, it's hard as a dad, but the, 
I'm always looking for the same edge with them. I think that I'm really looking for with myself, um, which is to push the boundaries of fear so that they are having fun because it is fun to break through fear with things like skiing and surfing um, while doing it in a way where it's not like if you make one mistake, the consequences are severe. So I try to get them to recognize where they can have that experience where like you don't need to do go on the ledge where if one mistake, you're dead. (laughs) You know, it can be just as fun to go on the ledge where it's like, technically it's just as challenging, but it's like, you don't, (laughs) you know, you don't need to die. Yeah. Like it's that balance between, you know, being careful and taking precautions, but also taking risks is, is important too, because that's how we grow and that's how we learn. And and failing is also very important for our growth. So it is. Yeah. I think um, it's like, how can you get in a place where you can fail, um, fail forward, you know, because if you, if you fail forward and break your arm, that's okay. <laughs> if you fail forward and break your neck, it's like, you know, it's so with kids, you're just always, we, I had that. I didn't, I've never talked about this, but I had, a ter- actually the most terrifying experience of my life is when my oldest son got a bad concussion we were in spain and um he loves to get flipped around and since he was a baby i've been flipping him around like you know we'd gotten pretty good at doing little like i'll twirl you around my arm and he'd do so we were just walking around spain and the kids were kind of bored so he was like dad like flip me around and i was doing like having him do like a backflip basically but holding him and uh, on his landing he like missed his heel and it was stupidly we were doing it on cement because we'd like i'd felt really confident in my abilities i'd been holding him for you know seven years doing stuff like this and he missed and he hit the back of his head really bad and uh there were like two days where we he was like asleep and we didn't he wasn't in a coma but we were like, oh, is this going to be a, a head injury that is, you know, that affects his whole life? And that was like a huge experience um, for all of us. Um, one that I just felt awful about. He fortunately made a full recovery and is a thriving, healthy kid. But we come back to it sometimes where I was in skiing or something. I'll say, well, you know, you can get overconfident and you do have to with kids I often lean toward being more permissive and like take risks. So sometimes my challenge is like being like, okay, am I, am I being safe? You know, that sounds pretty, uh, yeah, as a parent, pretty scary. And we spoke, we touched on it earlier about, you know, the, the importance of meditation and how much it can help and dull down our, our fears. If someone's listening, who's never tried to meditate and doesn't really understand how to do it like what do you suggest a person can kind of begin to meditate what should they do interestingly meditation doesn't quite dull down although i totally get i think i've used that language myself your fears if you look at the research meditators actually can have a higher fear response or arousal response to like a threat the difference is that they become better at 
coming back to baseline. So you actually want a healthy fear response for things like a car swerving in front of you because you want to react quickly and fear isn't bad. It's just uh, telling you, watch out. So interestingly, meditation can make you respond faster and sort of more ninja-like, but you might feel some fear from that too, but you then calm down more quickly. So that's really kind of the place we'd like to be so that fear doesn't become this thing that then pesters you later when there isn't a reason to or a reason to say be in a heightened state because that's really i think fear gets a bad rap because it's like we always think of fear oh no that's you know that's used by politicians and stuff to control us or whatever but like fear in its most basic form you just have to remember it's energy but you don't want that energy around at the wrong time like when you have to go to bed and the way to get i mean there's so many infinite ways now different practices uh to do but the most the one with the most research behind it if you're coming at this from a purely like secular place is just mindfulness based stress reduction really which is it's the practice of being with what is in your mind as it is so usually we try to distract ourselves from discomfort and mindfulness is just teaching us to stop anchor ourselves in in usually the breath just something that is here in the present moment and then let let your mind be. So if you're feeling stress, don't say, why am I stressed? What is, what's going on? What should I do? Um, just say, okay, there it is. There's the feeling of stress. But you have the breath to anchor yourself. So start by just you know getting in a comfortable position, back straight, and then just start to um, notice your breathing and the sensation of breathing. And you just start by noticing the sensations coming in your nostrils and then out through your nostrils. So you're breathing just naturally through your nose. And it's amazing just that, you know, if you're listening, you can start to do it now. Just that tracking the sensation of breath has has this totally altering feeling where all of a sudden you're like oh i haven't been noticing any sensation because we're all so in our heads and the body is a way that gets us back into the moment so jamal we're coming to uh, the end and i always ask my guests these round of uh, quick fire questions I will. I asked people their, their, if they have any sort of weird fears or phobias and you told me that you have triphobia or is it trypophobia? I can't remember the, the scientific term, but it's the fear of little bumps. I have that. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Yeah, and it's really, really weird and it's really hard to explain what it is, but for me it's, it's like a honey, honeycomb I can't really look at or um, the pips in peppers if you cut open a pepper and you and you look at the pips <laughs> and I don't know where that comes from but I don't I only know one other person a friend another friend who has it and then you told me you had it and I thought oh my god it's a thing you know it can't be that rare yeah I um it is a thing because I I thought I was alone too and then a woman I dated in college had it my sister kind of has it and then, yeah, it's like you can. I looked it up when I was writing the Fear Project, and there it was, like not so rare. And it is the weirdest thing. It's like a disgust slash fear. And 
has lessened for me as I've gotten older. Have you found that you've no it's changed at all no No, (laughs) my friends who know I have it tease me and they send me pictures that no will really cause a reaction and that's cruel (laughs) I had to tell you that because I thought oh my when I I have the same I have the same (laughs) that's so funny and we both like became obsessed with fear I wonder if there's like a a correlation (laughs) really just the the Weird bumps are driving us. Yeah. So, Jamal, <laughs> how have you felt the most courageous in your life? I mean, since we're in the quick fire, I will say that right after serving that first wave at Mavericks, I remember just feeling it was like I'd broken through a childhood primal fear and, um, and I f- did feel like I could do anything. What is the book in your life that has given you courage? You know, I think it's Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, but it's not actually the book, <laughs> although I do like it. It's his story. He was like not successful and um, self-published like a bunch of different versions of it and was like selling it on street corners basically before he became, you know, America's poet. And I think just that passion to do what you you know is true in your heart and and not worrying what the world thinks um, and staying at it when you know like you have kind of a calling is so inspiring to me. I often think of that. What is something that has improved your life? This could be a habit or a routine. Since we've already talked about meditation, which is a huge one, which is all about being in the now, another kind of meditating is is visualization and this is incredibly helpful for me, whether it's, you know, surfing, like seeing myself on the wave that I'm scared of or seeing myself doing the turn I want to learn before, but really also like visualizing myself in the place that I want to be. You know, right now I have some projects that I want to push forward that that feel like, will I ever be able to really do that? So when I'm struggling or it's keeping me up at night or something, I'll, I'll lay there and just think, see myself having done the project and seeing myself celebrating it. That's a really important fuel for me. Yeah. And my last question, what would you do if you were not afraid? Definitely. I would be um, a traveling musician, like, singer songwriter i love writing music and i love playing it and i've never given it the time don't necessarily need to do it for a living i would just love for like that to be a part of my life because i enjoy it so much thank you jamal so much for coming on fear itself this has been really really wonderful oh thank you it's a real honor and privilege yeah thank you thanks to jamal yogas for joining me on the podcast Next week, I'll be speaking to one of the world's most iconic entrepreneurs, Richard Branson. Keep up to date by liking, reviewing and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favourite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Oli Giyu. 
Additional creative support from Selena Christophidis, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Martin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.